Welcome to the Dystopian Republic. I am your host, Raul Guerrero. Our story for today begins on the midday of June 19th, 2016. An excessive heat shined over the parched plain of Rancho Amarillo, located in La Gran Lanuda. It was a city made notable by its cattle ranches, steakhouses, and rodeos. But beyond that, the city was known nationwide as a stronghold of Brumelian conservatism, leaning right in every election since the first in 1856. Campaign posters supporting Brumelian President Livingston Mondragon Sr., stuck to the windows of the shops in the main street, alongside the two black stripes, one white stripe and black star that symboled the nation he governed. A covered, long-horned Laramie trotted up the prairie hills of the city's outskirts. In that luxury pickup, Quen Merlo looked out, placidly excited to see her cousin Corey for the first time since the fifth grade. While of the same clan, the upbringings Quen and Corey had were night and day. Quen was a city girl who lived life at a fast and bustling pace, while Corey spent hers living at a pace much slower and more relaxed. Skyscrapers, limousines, consumerism, and jamborees comprised Quen's world, while Corey's was one of ranches, pickup trucks, cowboyism, and hootenannies. Despite their differing upbringings, their unbridled loyalty to one another always came first, pouring scorn on anyone who tried to tear them apart. Quen pushed Corey to be more personable and to present herself better, while Corey pushed Quen to be tougher, and to stand up for herself more. But their bond, for all its endurant ties, was from eight years ago, the last time they talked. Quen was optimistic that the Cory she'll meet will be the Cory from their grade school days. However, catching up wasn't her only reason for being in town. Her arrival at Corey's ranch and their subsequent reunion snuggled away her worries of Corey not being the partner she remembered. As sweet as their hug was, the reception Quen gave to Lindy and Joby Jr.'s caustic greetings, though smilingly polite, was quite sour. To say her relationship with her aunt and uncle was loose would be an understatement. Though that one-on-two ire had always existed, it was made so much worse by a rancorous falling out her mother Escarn and father Quentin had with them that fateful spring in 2008. In spite of that, they convincingly pretended to be in good talking terms to keep Corey happy. Corey was the one person who kept them from coming to verbal and physical blows. She was unmindful of the animosity 
between her parents and cousin. Corey never heard nor saw them talk or act in any hostile way whatsoever unless it involved anything political. The nature of Quen's other reason for stopping by, the annual People Party Students National Conference was in town. The student wing of the conservative Brumelian People's Party. Quinn and Corey were personally invited to attend by Vice Chair Jade Pasmino and Chair Josefa Saviola, respectively, surprising considering their club associate statuses. Never have they held any position of authority in the party. Their claims to fame were their respective kinships with them, adoring some and irritating most others. Quinn and Corey took an hour to settle in, gushing about cute boys, sexy boots, and musical pop. Their gush hour climaxed in an aplomb-filled show of lotions, hair polish, lipstick, skirts, dress shirts, blazers, bow ties, heels, twirls, and embraceive selfies. The bucks they looked like were in the millions. Dressed their best, their attention turned to two presents, one boxed in metallic silk, the other boxed in cowhide. Quen's present for Corey was a double bracelet with melted onyx lone stars in each silver bead. The ones she got from her were leather boots that rose to the calves and had undergone a gothic revival. Quinn and Corey took a minute to fully behold the gifts they were just given. The regards both gifts demonstrated hewed their hearts pinker than the boldest carnations, setting off a flurry of thank yous and your welcomes of many verbal and physical varieties. Joby and Lindy's shouting brought them downstairs and into the living room. There, they saw them watching Telezoro, a TV channel notorious for its right-wing hyper-partisanism. Toddy Delgado, a TV host, was moderating a debate between Jade and Josefa about the merits of an American businessman's presidential candidacy. Josefa firmly explained how that man had resurrected a nationalistic consciousness the Brumelian people thought was gone and never coming back. She particularly enjoyed his talk about putting his country first, protecting its identity and culture from illegal immigrants and refugees, and returning it to its former glory. Her words affrighted Quen and Jade and Nonplus Toddy, but satisfied Corey, Joby, and Lindy. But no matter the reaction, they all knew that Josefa was referring to the paleo-fascist regime that ruled Brumelia from 1984 to 1995. Her spine shivering, Jade asked Josefa if she was seriously advocating for the very regime 
that threw Bromelia into the devil's dark abyss. She wanted to give her one chance to distance herself from the sadistic beasts who brought the nation to its knees. Jade was hoping Josefa would come to her senses for the good of their political clan. But to her horror, she doubled down on everything she said, attacking Livingston for constantly bending the knee to the liberal United Brumelian appeal. Josefa found fault in him using his moderatism as a shield to raise taxes, increase regulations, and go farther on social justice than his liberal predecessor ever did. The tides of Jade's horror lowered enough for her to ignite the fuel of her rebuttal. She bashed Josefa for all the hurt she's done to their cause and the hate she's infected many of their subordinates with. Josefa, in response, crossed her arms and pretended to be saddened by her bashing, failing to humor Jade one bit. She laughingly made fun of her for even thinking that she was advocating for mass genocide and enslavement, sternly telling her that nationalists like herself don't hold those kinds of hatreds anymore and haven't for over 20 years. However, what she did call for was a kind of nationalism that was civil and non-violent. Jade upsettedly called Josefa naive and ignorant of history. Incredibly, Josefa took little offense to the names she called her. Hearing her liberal counterparts call her by them countless times, she understood that Jade and her ilk were vital in amassing majority support among the electorate. Trying to end their debate contently, Josefa told Jade they were equally entitled as Brumelians to speak their pieces and is proud of her for exercising that right. Sucking it up like a good little underling, Jade unwillingly thanked her for saying that. But in a finger snap, Josefa urged the viewers to vote for Audley Linde, his primary opponent, saying he'll be the nationalist Livingston should have been, but refused to be, and that it's about time Brumelia had a president who's unafraid of the nation's leftist woke elites. That prompted Toddy to wrap the debate up, causing Josefa to yell oddly Linde 2016 as the show broke to commercial. Scoffing in disgust, Joby called Jade an elitist female dog for slandering a huge swath of the conservative movement. Lindy then reminded him that Jade is a liberal city dweller, deriding him for being surprised that Jade would see people like them as the scum of the country. They stood, turned, and to their shock, saw Quen and Corey scooching at the entryway. Corey was about to confirm her parents' sentiments when Quen's teeth-grinding quivers became audible and visible. Having her in her soft arm, she facially reproached them, not for their far-right diatribing, 
but for mentally reducing her cousin to a needy kitten. For Corey's sake, her parents calmly gave her and Quen a wide berth. Joby and Lindy knew full well they couldn't sever their bond, even if they tried. All their attempts would do is fissure rifts into their relationship with Corey. Only she and Quen could put an end to their bond. That was why, when they learned that the conference was being held in their hometown, their minds jumped up and down with joy. Their daughter and niece's bond didn't change the fact that their right-wing politics were at opposite points diametrically. That evening, Quinn and Corey rode in a town car, hoping the social they're going to will dilute the cortisol straining their nerves. In Rancher Street, young people were patroning the country-themed bars and clubs that lined its 11 blocks. Its nightlife, however vibrant, reached its crescendo at a bourbon saloon. Inside, well over a hundred young right-wingers drank, ate, and mingled. The second Quen and Corey entered was the second Josefa and Jade flagged them down, splitting their table mates. Their order to come over was their signal that they were indeed in. Jade introduced them to Rounds Castellanos II and Elmar Hierro, while Josefa presented Selena Uvalle and Renato Perez to them. Their greetings didn't warm the cold shoulders they got from the four they were just introduced to. Quinn and Corey tried breaking the ice a second time, but Rounds, Elmer, Selena, and Renato all proceeded to burn them hotter than embering firewood, telling them they're mooching freeloaders unworthy of being in their inner circle. But their bashing didn't end there. The gutter it fell into made the lineage Quinn and Corey shared a source of shame and lowliness. Having heard enough, Jade and Josepa put their feet down, having them apologize and placing them all on probation. That subjection gave those four a taste of the medicine they force-fed Quinn and Corey, dismaying them as badly as their bashing dismayed their sufferers. Fearing further punishment, those four walked away and sat at the bar counter as a unit, dark cloud storming above their heads. That was when two long steps, a step-close step, and a double shuffle flooded into their ears. Their Note sequence of choice. Man-man, man-woman, and woman-woman pairs buzzed up on liquor, danced it up. Corey and Josefa leapt at the chance to let out their inner cowgirls. Jade wanted to do the same with Quen, but hesitancy kept them seated. Asked what was wrong, Quen told her she didn't know how to square dance. Jade responded by telling her that she could teach her to step and shuffle like a true cowgirl, explaining that if she of all people could kick her dance, so could Quen. Like Quen, Jade too was bred and raised by the big city, 
but the city she was from was Delgadopolis, Bromelia's largest and most financially powerful city. Furthermore, she was exposed to all walks of life, north, south, east, and west. And those walks included people from cities such as Rancho Amarillo. Sensing Quen's nerves starting to relax, Jade, Pinky swore to her that she'll be safe with her by her side, swearing on her name that no one will lead her to slaughter as long as she's around. Feeling Jade's presence shield her, Quen grittingly took her hand and they made their way to the dance floor. As the floor drew near, the sensual tenderness in Quen's grip touched Jade's heart. Her tenderness made it clear to Jade that she was lonely, in need of someone to take her in and give her the moral support her parents weren't mentally capable of giving anymore. But knowing Quen, it was unlikely she'd openly discuss that with her or anyone else, unless she absolutely had to and wanted to. That in mind, Jade was more than willing to take Quen in. It was just a matter of Quen swallowing her pride. Quen was raised to pick herself up by her bootstraps, to rely on herself, to face the world without feeling or complaint, and to endure with strength its pain and hardship. The grade she made in abiding by those virtues was passable. As Jade helped Quen escape her shell, Cory and Josefa were dancing their rear ends off on the hard shards of theirs. The propinquity Jade had with Quen was the close kinship Cory felt toward Josefa, but the roots of Josefa's affinity for Cory were far less altruistic. In any case, as the social became hours old, the blood alcohol contents of its guests soared into the tenths of a percent. Quen's shell broke through, matching her dancing with Jade's, in energy and clarity. Just feet away, Cory and Josefa took the energy and clarity in their dancing to the extreme. Then, when nine at night came around, Quen and Jade accidentally collided with Cory and Josefa, knocking Cory flat on her face and Josefa right on her backside. The booms their crashes made sobered their peers out of their drunken dancing, even as the music continued playing. Their prefrontal cortexes now curtailed. Jade and Josefa got into each other's glowers, firing one profanity-laced cock-a-snook after another. Everybody, including Quen and Corey, were stunned to hear their leaders sing the alphabet of swearing. That song opened to the ugly turn Jade and Josefa's spat would take. Josefa jogged Jade's memory of tomorrow's vote, a vote to decide which candidate for president their organization will endorse. She couldn't wait to abdicate Livingston from his political throne, expelling him and his cabal of cuck conservatives 
including Jade. Irate, Jade told her that the abdication she so wanted won't come to pass, and that she, Audley, and their fellow rabble-rousers will be the ones getting forced out. She confessed that she never liked her and regretted ever voting to confirm her as the chair. Josefa felt the same about her vote to confirm Jade as vice chair, rebuking herself for ever believing that she could tame her. The only thing that held her back was her fear of fracturing their party, guaranteeing a liberal victory. But now she realized that her party was gonna be fractured regardless. As for Jade, what kept her tamed was the hope she held out that she could be the check and balance Josefa needed to lead honorably. She gradually came to the conclusion that Josefa was going to say and do as she wished. Darn the repercussions. Jade kept her mouth shut as Josefa talked hers off. Until now. At that moment, Josefa forced the clan that lined Jane's blood into discussion, mocking her and her brothers and sisters for being the products of their parents' sugar daddy, sugar baby lust fest. Her snipes to the genitalia gasped everyone into staggers, slamming their social to a silent halt. Her rage about to break loose, Jade boasted that she at least had loved ones to wake up and fall asleep to every day and night. That boasting furrowed Josefa's brows, frowned her grinding mouth, and pinked her warm, trembly face, flushing the fun she had at Jade's expense out of her system. It was a truth too accurate for Josefa to even fathom about disputing. She could never connect with either of her parents on any deep level. Her mother Aleja was a parental autarchic who made her feel she couldn't do anything right. Loreto, her father, wasn't around enough for her to really have any relationship with him. That brief self-reflection was all it took for Josefa's self-conceit to smash to smithereens and for the silver lining of the bad parenting she experienced to present itself. The silver lining was that she vowed to give those who towed the line she drew the intimacy she never got. At any rate, Jade's verbal low blows sailed Josefa's ship of non-violence, resulting in Josefa forcefully blowing Jade's left cheek with her clenched fist. Josefa's punch collapsed the seawall that contained her rage, giving rise to a hot pink alcohol stench toe and fro of catty, bare-fisted, and barefooted strikes and holds. Rounds, Aylmer, Selina, and Renato scrambled to separate them, shoutily pleading with them to stop their swinging. But for all their begging, Jade and Josefa's fighting went on unswayed. 
surfacing the very real concerns of permanent injuries and felonious charges. Unable to bear the fighting any longer, Quinn and Corey used every ounce of their being to break them up and subdue them until their adrenaline wore off. Their success in diffusing what could have been a career-ending altercation took everyone's breaths away. It disestablished their confreres' execrating disregards. Their fellow members now understood why Josefa and Jade took them under their wings. Quen and Corey vindicated that shared sentiment by adjourning the social. They instructed the bartenders not to call the police and instead call up as many cabs over to the bar as they could, paying each of them hundreds to comply. Within minutes, the members piled into the cabs, departing like nothing happened. Quen helped Jade into the cab they're leaving in, as Corey helped Josefa into the one they'll be sharing. Being separated for any length of time wasn't on either Quen or Corey's agendas, but thanks to what transpired moments ago, that separation is now unavoidable. To make it less unideal, they kissed and embraced the sweetest of good nights, Pinky swearing to reunite on sight. One by one, Rounds, Aylmer, Selena, and Renato thanked Quen and Corey for resolving the fight and apologized for prejudging them. The bond Jade and Josefa seemed to have with them wasn't something they were aware of prior to tonight. Finding no reason to hold a grudge, Quen and Corey accepted their apologies. The fallout from the fight had most people tossing and turning or laying awake. Never had they heard Jade or Josefa talk or act the way they did during the social. Though hoping that their fight was a one-off deal, they feared that it was the precursor to something more appalling. The next morning, Jade and Josefa woke up with severe headaches, sick stomachs, and hypersensitive eyes. Their hangovers dulled when Quen and Corey entered their rooms. Quen brought Jade steak and eggs from the hotel restaurant downstairs. Corey used the kitchen in Josefa's condo to make her pancakes. Their breakfasts jump-started their brains, calling last night's fight back to their minds. The feelings in their veins, as hard as ever, Jade and Josefa made it their missions for today to bury the other and their faction once and for all. They barraged Quen and Corey with questions pertaining to their knowledge of the other's doings during their early lives, wanting them to spit every detail of who the other was. Each and every answer they got wasn't the slightest bit negative. The prying natures of their questions didn't please Quen and Corey any, who were in disbelief that Jade and Josefa, of all people, would try 
tearing them apart. Quentin Corey made it loud and clear that nothing they say will loosen their blood ties one Newton. Done fooling around, Jade and Josefa presented them with boxes of material they've uncovered that the other readily put out into cyberspace. The boxes contained printouts, discs, and tapes exposing the other's explicit, uncensored feelings and attitudes. Jade showed Quen a video of Corey irately ranting about illegal aliens coming to Brumelia to freeload off the government, steal the scholarships of hard-working Brumelians, and force their men into child support. The video Josefa showed Corey was of Quen expressing her perturbation for the rising number of skinheads, thugs, crazies, and jingoists populating the right wing, calling them fascist, unbrumelian losers who deserve to die alone and in pain. In reaction, Quen stated what Corey said, while insensitive, wasn't racist in that she was talking about immigrants with criminal records. Likewise, Corey described Quen's comments as callous, but stated that the people she was attacking were no less so. Neither Jade nor Josefa talked back and just moved on. Jade handed Quen a packet of screenshots showing posts Corey had since deleted. The posts Corey wrote and posted were profanity-laced, anti-Semitic filth, making light of the burial and fatal shovel beatings of liberal dissidents. The packet Josefa handed Corey was a text conversation Quen had with Marx Cisneros, a girl who'd years later be a far-left extremist known to law enforcement. They chuckled it up about chasing cops like pigs, ready to be cut up and eaten. The packets had Quen and Corey not believing their eyes. Their bond wounded, yet still alive, they embraced the fact that the other had deep-rooted issues that warranted immediate and severe addressing. Their desires to address hit a roadblock when Jade and Josefa told them that the other was simply beyond help, conditioned to the point that hate and violence were their only ways to thrive and flourish. To prove that point, Jade and Josefa plopped SD cards into small cameras, connected them to TVs, turned said TVs on, and pressed play. In one video, Corey greeted viewers from the sanctity of her bedroom, by herself, her parents miles away, at the peak of day, no warning bells triggered. In the other, Quen said hello to those watching at a well-hidden part of the high school she went to. In her lonesome, no adults for miles, after school, nothing out of the ordinary. Quen veiled a ski mask over her head, exposing only her eyes and nose. That veiling segued to three of her peers 
also in ski masks, entering the picture. On Corey's end, she took up a softball bat that seen better days. That taking up was followed by her three closest friends who also have bats joining in. As on as their bells were, what Quen and Corey would bear witness to next scared them stoolless. Quen had her friends bring in a galled boy, hand-tied by rope, who had long been bullying them for their stick-like builds, and for being girlish boys and boyish girls. Corey introduced a panicky tomboy tied up in her closet, responsible for beating and publicly humiliating them for being uncouth provincials. Unsympathetic, Corey, with her friends' help, pulled their victim out and took turns kicking and punching mud holes into her. Her feelings the self-same, Quen's peers helped her throw their victim around, making him flop like a fish with their fists and trotters. Quen and Corey watched on in a pall as the other went from being the cousin they knew and loved to being a bestial wretch under the influence of the devil. The beatings went on for what seemed like an eternity, and then, minutes later, the punching, kicking, and wrestling frenzies slowly but surely winded up. Both victims wailed out agonies that purpled and blued their dermas, broke their noses, and kicked their ribs in. In two heats of the moment, Quinn and Corey voiced their longings for their chances to inflict on the other what they inflicted on their specific victims, but worse, their paybacks for being left out in the cold. The Laffy Blythes both gangs got out of their miseries, shattered Quen Corey's illusions, heavying their hearts a gigaton. Their tolerance for the other's wrongdoings were very high, but not unbounded. The bounds they set revolved around any action that willfully maximized anyone's pain and suffering, especially for pleasure. Those limits were set because they were more than certain the other wouldn't cross them. But now that they did, and vengefully so, the bond they've cultivated their whole lives has now rotted dry from its leaf tops to its root bottoms. Their pensively sad looks were met with compassion softer than the blankets they slept in. Jaden Josefa softly told them they'd never, ever subject them to such a deep mental scarring unless they absolutely had to for their safety and futures, telling them that the other will lay to waste their livelihoods, reputations, and self-esteems. Quinn and Corey regained enough of their composures to apologize for disbelieving them and accusing them of betrayal. Jaden Josefa explained 
that they held Quen Corey's hands the whole time the other didn't, having their best interests at heart better than the other ever would. Taking their words in, Quen Corey came to terms with the reality that the other only let the bond live so that the other would shove their faction's nefarious Kool-Aid down their throat and then throw them away the second their usefulness was outlived. Even as young girls, their kinship had its share of ups and downs, one of which all but fell them out as they graduated out of junior high, and that quarrel had lots to do with the hate their parents' deteriorating relations infected them with. Nonetheless, Quen, Corey, Jade, and Josefa were pinged by their phones that the countdown to the conference's convening ticked below the one-hour mark. Within that hour, all four will meet under one venue, Quen Corey's chances to use what they've learned that morning to unleash their scornful rafts. Their rafts, armed to detonate, diverted them from the mechanisms under the hoods of the videos and printouts. But even in the midst of all that textual, visual, and audio ugliness, their kinship had a last stand. And as we'll learn soon, that last stand's triumph or fall will factor into what becomes of not only those four young women, but of everyone they've ever come into contact with. And that, ladies and gentlemen, was the Kool-Aid Drinkers. Thank you for humbling me with your listening ears, and please be sure to share this show to as many people as you can. Follow me on LinkedIn and send me your questions and feedback at Raul Guerrero Jr. 95 at gmail.com. And on that note, I'm Raul Guerrero and come again for another episode of The Dystopian Republic.